Good morning. All my paraphernalia is just falling off me here this morning. Um, welcome to you joining us online. Also, I'm glad you're joining us in that way. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. Um, hope it's a good day for you and all your expectations are met, whatever they may be. Um, when I grew up as a kid, I had this vivid imagination. I still do. Um, I, I would classify myself as a controlled daydreamer. I like to daydream a lot and just kind of lose myself in my little make-believe world. And frequently when I was a young person, I'd watch an NBA game, one of those classics between the Boston Celtics and the, and the, and the Laker team. We won't talk about them. But anyway, um, and then the, a last-minute shot would be made, and I'd go out my driveway and make that shot over and over again and pretend I was that player. Anybody ever do that when you were growing up? Yeah, sure. If you're in Minnesota, you played hockey. Everybody played hockey, and I used to do the same thing with... with uh, you know, shooting the puck in the net and saying, eh, he wins. And, of course, soccer, that's a little abstract to me. That didn't really exist back then. But, um, um, you know, other sports like baseball, same thing. The base are loaded and hit the ball out of the park, you know, and you win the game, yay, and you dream. And then, um, you know, you, you get older and you begin to not do that so much. Uh, I know that with uh, some young women, um, uh, my daughters did this, a couple of them, they would have make-believe weddings when they were little. And they would dream about that. Any of you ever dream about a future mate? Or, uh, yeah, then you get married rats, right? Anyway, uh, um, you know, you have those dreams. And, and I didn't do that much as a boy, but I noticed that my, my girls would have these make-believe things that they would do every now and then. Young people often dream about their future. Some of you are graduates this year. And I come to your graduation party and say, what are you going to do with your life? And you all have this answer. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, go to school and be a politician or I'm going to do, you know, be a mechanical engineer or whatever. There's these dreams, there's these aspirations, doctor or some people who are a little bit more audacious might say, I want to be a professional athlete and, uh, and uh, or I'm going to actually be a politician that changes things, which is a joke. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, that just doesn't happen in real life. Um, anyway, um, then something sad begins to happen. We kind of grow up and reality sets in and dreams kind of get pushed to the side and the mundane parts of life just take over. Um, one of my favorite movies I watch is It's a Wonderful Life. And since it's halfway from Christmas right now, we might as well talk Christmas, right, today? And Jimmy Stewart stars in this movie uh, and he's frustrated because he feels like he's given up all his dreams to have this family. And, he's, and the movie kind of, you know, goes along kind of revealing to him by the fumbling angel, Clarence, which is bad, terrible theology, okay? So don't, don't take that part serious. But, you know, by the end of the movie, he realizes, I really have a wonderful life. I have a family. It's a great life. Now, as a young person growing up, if you would have said to me, Steve, is your dream to have six kids? No, that was my nightmare. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I love you, Vicki. Um, but I would never have thought that would be a dream to pursue. How about you? And then, then it happens. It's a reality I wasn't expecting. And now, at this point in my life, it's like the best thing. And a day like this kind of brings it to the forefront. I am so glad for my kids, my, my uh, you know, my now sons and daughters who are there by marriage and my grandkids. And, you know, it's just a wonderful life. It really is a wonderful life. But... Along the way, sometimes our dreams can kind of get stifled and we begin to get a little bit more cynical, a little bit more hardened. Now, I think the same thing happens to us spiritually. I remember when I was 13, I came to Jesus. Man, I was messed up. 
and I was so angry and so frustrated and my home life was so horrendous and you know um, insecure and it was like just the Holy Spirit washed over me as a person and I was so different and I had such big dreams and anyone that would talk to me, I was talking to them. I would be called the Jesus freak. I, would, I talk about Jesus all the time. Anyone talk to me about Jesus, I talked about him. And, and um, then, um, then something happens, I think, to people after this initial love affair with Christ. You know what happens? It gets routine. It can get a little bit mundane. It can get normalized. I like to say it gets civilized. You learn how to do this thing. You learn the Christianese. And you learn the right responses. And some of the fire and the zeal, it's gone. And the dreams start diminishing. And instead of having this enthusiasm and what could be attitude and let's, let's dream big, we begin to get a little cynical, a little hard. Oh, that can't happen. And people just don't work that way. And, and what I want to do this Father's Day with you is I want, I hope to take us back to this place of dreaming big again. And to thinking what could be in God, not you know, being cynical or, you know, the party killer, so to speak. But I want us to begin to be people of God who dream big. Our culture desperately needs that. But more than that, you know what? You and I need that, amen? We need to be people who dream big in our God because we serve a God who's the one who fulfills big dreams. And so today we're on week three of our series, It's Ordinary to be Extraordinary. And I want to encourage you, to become a Holy Spirit-led dreamer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a person that thinks what could be and become that kind of follower. And we're going to use Hezekiah as uh, an example to learn vicariously from today because he was one of these ones in his life that experienced great exploits. And I, I, I believe that those exploits aren't just for somebody like Hezekiah on the pages of Scripture. It's for you and I to experience also. When I use the word exploit, I just mean daring act or bold endeavor. That's all that word means. And so, like Star Trek has this missional statement, to go where no man has gone before, I really believe God's people should have a missional statement, to go where no one's gone before in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That should become kind of our, 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 our saying. So we're going to look at the story of Hezekiah from, uh, uh, from 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And we're going to talk about how to do great exploits. Are you with me? And I want to say this to you dads. The best gift that you can give your kids is to be a big dreamer in Jesus Christ. A what could be person. Don't leave that up to your wife. You dads do that. You dream big. Challenge them to dream big, amen? And just see what happens. It's amazing what happens. So how to do great exploits. Here we go. We're going to begin with 2 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Let's get introduced to Hezekiah. In the third year of Hosea, son of Eli, uh, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Now here, verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Do you want God-sized moments? Here's point number one. Do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Now we often think of doing right as some rules to follow, and I'm okay with God. Doing right is so much bigger than that. Doing right means I have this faith-based, Jesus-dependent, approach to life. 
I think that leads to mighty moves of God in our, our lives, to have this faith-based, Jesus-dependent kind of view of doing life. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, we're introduced to this guy named King Asa of Judah. But he's rebuked by Hanani, the prophet of God. You know why? Because he relied on other soldiers instead of relying on God. And then Hanani, the prophet, says this in verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 16. And I come back to this verse a lot. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And Hannah and I was saying to Asa, you should have trusted in God here, not some people. God would come to your rescue. And I have this perspective now that I'm learning to embrace more and more and more, and it's this. God is on the hunt to do great exploits in the lives of those who are committed to him, those who do then right in his eyes. I find this scripture so illuminating because frequently I'll pray this way, God, would you move? Would you move in our times like you've moved in times gone before us? Would you do mighty acts today as you've done in past times? And now I'm beginning to realize God's saying, yeah, I will, I will. I'm on a hunt to do that. I'm looking for people that want that to happen. Uh, You don't have to go far to find me doing that kind of thing. So what blocks this interaction with God becomes my question because God's saying, I'm on a hunt to do these great things. I'm looking for people that are given over and committed to me. So I have to think the problem lies with us somehow. What are we not doing? What are we missing here a little bit? And this is where 2 Kings 18 takes us next. Listen to what happens next in Hezekiah's case. This is 2 Kings 18 verse 4. Hezekiah removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So, doing right here is clarified for us a little bit. Doing right here is illustrated by Hezekiah. Doing right will involve disposing of that which displaces or distracts from genuine worship of God. So when when we're supposed to do right in the eyes of the Lord, it means that we are going to dispose of those things that displace God in our lives, and we're going to get rid of those things that distract God in our lives. That's what it means to do right. So instead of really expounding on you what it means that they were worshiping sacred stones or asherah poles and all that kind of thing, I want to have instead a personal application happen here. I want to give you a two-step action plan um, for you to do what's right in God's eyes and then set yourself up to experience a mighty move of God in your life. First of all, is there something displacing God in your life? Dispose of it. Get rid of it. In Hezekiah's day, the people were worshiping false gods. And this worship involved then high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles. All you need to know is that these were pagan practices that displaced genuine worship of God. If you're going to do exploits in God, he has to be the true God of your life. And here's what I think was the real problem that was happening in there. 
culture and happens in our culture as well, there was a mixing of religions. There was a worshiping at this Asherah pole, and then there would be turning around worshiping God at the temple, then there was being used in these sacred stones, and then there was being God at the temple, and then you know, you follow what I'm saying here, and they were just kind of trying to do both things. Now, if we're honest in our culture today, secular humanism has become the religion of the land. It's strong, and we have a very materialistic culture that thinks man is God. And so we have this mixed up people, and some of us may be included in that, where we're, we're approaching life as though God doesn't exist, and we're kind of thinking man's in charge, and then we go to church and we kind of say, well, God, you're in charge, and then we kind of go through the week and we say, God, uh, you got, forget about God, well, man's kind of in charge, and there's this lot of confusion going on, and, and the problem is the mixing of religions. And you know what is problematic is our churches don't say the same things, Right? We have all these cultural things going on right now and all the churches are saying different things about, you know, the, the, the issues and I think that confuses people even further. Amen? I drive here, I, I, I hesitate to share this, but I'm going to share it anyway because um, I never hesitate to share, uh, really. I just say that to be nice. Um, so I'm driving over in the morning and I go down 8th Street, I go by, come and go, and I go by the little church there that loves to put out their little banners on the side walls of the church. And usually it's a banner I just want to burn. Um, <laughs> now let me tell you why, though, okay? Let me tell you why, because it's confusing. The one that's out there today is, Jesus doesn't reject people, neither do we. And you know where they're coming from with that. It doesn't take a genius to understand what the motivation is for that. But here's my problem. That's only part of the story. Sure, Jesus welcomed sinners. He ate with sinners. Amen, right? But Jesus didn't say, come as you are and stay as you are. You're fine. Did he ever say that? No, it's only half the story. There's this great potential for earnest, authentic transformation that Jesus says is available. Come to me, he says. Die to yourself. Never be the same. Be born again. Completely change your life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Become a holy interpretation. He doesn't say, come to me just as you are and stay just as you are. Never says that. And so when I see that message, I go, oh, that's such a message of hopelessness, of fatalism. That's not a message of Christ. Amen? Even though I understand what they're trying to be is welcoming to everybody, but it's not the message you want to give. All right, enough of that. We have to know what it is to really follow God and genuinely follow him. Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of all places of North Carolina at Chapel Hill uh, took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers. And I'm going to share this with you because it really applies, I think, to our culture in general. They found that the faith held and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers were now identifying as this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What this title means is that there are some rules that we should live by, moralistic, they're good for us, that's therapeutic, and there's a God out there, but he's not too involved. That's deism, okay? He's just out there kind of remote. And uh, Smith and his team defined further what moralistic therapeutic deism is. It consists of beliefs like this. One, God does exist and created in an order of the world, and he watches over humanity from afar. Two, this is where it gets kind of, you're going to go, oh, really? 
God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. Does that not sound like our culture today? As taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the general goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Four, God isn't particularly involved in our lives, but when we need him, we can call on him. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. If you were to pull the average person off the street and ask them to describe faith or Christianity, they would probably describe this moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's not Christianity, but that's probably what most people think of when they think of Christianity. And this is the creed of so many adolescents, and I think so many adults as well. And when these teenagers, there's 3,000 that were part of the study, were asked a crucial question, well, what do you believe about doctrine? What do you believe about your faith? What do you believe about, you know, Jesus Christ? Whatever. They just shrugged their shoulders, whatever. And I thought, oh, no. We never want to be whatever people. Amen? We need to be people who know who Jesus is and, and, and be in an authentic relationship. This is so critical if you want to experience the mighty move of God in your life. Let's go to a second piece here when it comes to, you know, this doing right in God's eyes, what it means for us in particular. Is there something distracting you from God? Then dispose of it. This was the bronze snake in the case of Hezekiah and clan. Now this bronze snake had come about this way. Back in the wilderness when the Israelites were wandering, they had this nasty tendency to grumble and be upset with God. So God at one point said judgment on them. A venomous snakes came and were biting people and they were all dying. Well, the people realized the, the cause and the result of their disobedience and they cried out in repentance to God and God heard their cry and he told Moses, take a bronze snake that represents the snakes, put it on a pole. If the people get bit and they look at the snake, then they're going to be healed. By the way, this is a side note. We don't get cause and effect very well as a culture anymore. Just think about it. We, we, we need to be repenting for lots of things that have gone astray. Even if we're God's people and we're doing nothing wrong. We need to be intercessors on behalf of our nation that's far gone from God. And we don't understand cause and effect as a, as a, as a, a collective kind of people. Anyway, just a side note. Um, so, fast forward now to Hezekiah's day. Now the people are worshiping the bronze snake. It's idol worship. What was once a good thing had now become a distraction. And Hezekiah smashed it to smithereens. He smashed the snake of Moses. I mean, Moses is a big dog in the history of Israel. And he smashed the snake. Right? I can see those of us who are hardcore traditionalists going, Oh, no! You can't do that. Right? And this is how we bring it into our modern context. In a modern context, what I see so frequently, whether you're young or old, I'm, I don't think this is age-dependent as much as we like to think about it, is we like our routines. We like our traditions. We like to have this consistency. And when things change, we go, oh, man. You know? And, and what I'm going to say is this, is sometimes we just need things smashed up a bit. Amen? So that we have to go back to Jesus Christ as the center of our faith. And sometimes some of these things that have captured us that are good things. 
It's good things. You know, at Billy Graham Crusades, people were saved there. The song was saying, come just as you are. Remember that song? Everybody wanted to sing that. I remember every day in church. I'm going, well, you know, maybe we need to move on here at some point. That's like a bronze snake now. We worship the song instead of really what we want to do is worship Jesus. Amen? And now, now, not only that kind of thing distracts us, but there are a lot of things else where in culture that can distract us. I mean, you've got Instagram and Facebook and all the social media lineup. And you've got some TV. I watch probably too much TV, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, and there's sporting events. And some people's moods are actually set for the day by how their professional athletic team did that day. Now, if you're a Vikings fan, you learned a long time ago to not let it affect you. You really have. Otherwise, you're going to be sad all the time. Amen? So, for me, praise God. Now, I'm just being facetious. But you get what I'm saying. When those things begin to have that kind of effect on us and our affections are going to them, smash them. Do a fast from TV. Turn off the social media. You're okay. Leave your phone behind sometimes, you know. And now I've got a watch that tracks me. I can't escape it anywhere I go. Anyway, I can take the watch off, which I do sometimes. But do you want God-sized moments in your life? Then you have to begin to practice these kinds of things. Let's go back to 2 Kings 18 and and see uh, the next reason for, uh, you know, the movement of God in Hezekiah's life. Listen to 2 Kings 18, verses 5 through 8. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Wow, huh? Either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord, had given Moses, and the Lord was with him, and he was successful whatever, in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories. So this is key. If you want to see mighty moves of God in your life, you've got to trust him. Now, trust looks like this. Trust is manifested by following him. So if you say, I trust God, then that means you will follow him. Amen? I, I, I love the clarity here that, that this brings to this kind of thing. Uh, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, but then we see there was no one like him. He followed hard after God. Now, at one point in my life, I was really captivated by this thing. Anybody been there? Basketball? I just love basketball. And I just... Played it all the time. I practiced it all. Oh, my ball, basketball's flat. I didn't know that. Anyway, I practiced it all the time. You know, I frequently hung out at the courts because you get in the games that way. I was always looking at somebody two or three years in front of me and, and saying, I'm going to be like them. I watched. I, I remember my model for my jump shot was Jojo White. I loved how he did a jump shot. He's I'm really dating myself here. I know that. But he was animated. He would, he would stop and he would jump and he would just like he stopped in midair and took a shot. And that's what I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced, you know. And, and, and then I did have some great moments because of, of all this time. Now, what I want to do is bring this into the, uh, into the spiritual realm. I think Hezekiah was that kind of crazy person when it came to a spiritual walk with God. He practiced and he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. He knew the fundamentals. He trusted in his God. He followed hard after his God. His life was like this constant practice session of putting it into 
real life. And then he modeled his life after those who had gone before him. He looked up to guys like King David, evidently, right? And he followed hard after his forefather. Um, I tell you what, people come to me frequently and they say, I feel dry. I don't feel like God's moving in my life. Or where's God? Well, listen, God is on the hunt, right? He's looking for people. God hasn't got anywhere. The question becomes, why aren't we experiencing him? And I I often tell a person when they say, I'm dry, I don't understand where God is in my life. I say, here's what you do. One, hang around church. Hang around God's people. Read God's word. Look at those who have gone before you. Look at some people that are experiencing God. Ask them why they're experiencing God. And guess what? Being in the right place, doing the right kind of fundamentals, entering into the game, so to speak, it puts you in this place where you experience God. Amen? There's no real, like, one, two, three formula. Just hang around. I mean, I got so many pickup games because you know what I did? I just hung around, man. Especially when I was younger. Eventually, they're going to let me play if they got desperate enough. When you're young, you follow what I'm saying? But anyway, hang around the things of God. Now we're back to uh, the story of, uh, of um, Hezekiah. And I want to talk to you about how this really gets extraordinary now. God is, it's his normal operating modus uh, uh, standard just to take us from ordinary to extraordinary experiences. So we see here Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria. And we're not going to read about that. You can read about that if you want. Second Kings chapter 18 verses 17 through 37. But get this. The Assyrians send this huge delegation and their people meet with Hezekiah's people and have this interesting exchange and conversation. Um, and and uh, wow, did the Assyrians threaten this little nation of Judah. It was like the big bad bully threatening this tiny little nation. You just have to see it, what was going on. There's all kinds of threats and, and all this. And so they bring all that information to Hezekiah. And get this, this is so important to understand if you want to experience God in your life in a mighty way. Great exploits often need great trials. Bummer, huh? Oftentimes I think we want to have a great exploit, but we don't want to have the great trial. We just want to see God do mighty things, but we don't want to have to go through that angst and that agony of a great trial. Little Judah was in trouble here. She had the big bad bully on the block, Assyria, mad at her. And as a follower of Jesus, we are told we don't have to look far to experience troubles in this life. Jesus, in fact, he made this promise. We don't quote this promise. I I bet none of you say this promise as, as a quote. But Jesus said, in this life, you will have troubles. That's a promise. And he goes on to say, but take heart, I have overcome this world. And so I've been asking God to help me see troubles differently lately in my life. Trouble is often seen as a foe when maybe it should be welcomed as a friend. How many of you, when you say, oh, good, my teenager is smart enough to make good, I'm glad I have trouble. Or you go to work and it's, your boss comes in and he takes a big stack of stuff to, there, you've got eight hours, get that done. You go, oh, thank you, God, for these troubles. <laughs> Amen. You know, or, you know, we go into the political realm and we go, whoo, what a confused area of our life right now. Thank you, God, for this national confusion. We don't see life like that, but get this. Trouble is often seen as a foe when it needs to be welcomed as a friend. And even as I'm sharing this, I have to be honest, I've been asking God, help me to do this kind of thing. Honestly, do this kind of thing in my life. 
Because my first initial response is to get angry or to go, ah, whatever, right? Walk away from it all. Where God is saying, no, engage in it and begin to see troubles as a friend because they push you to reliance on me. And here is what Hezekiah does according to 2 Kings 19 verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. When Hezekiah heard this, when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shepnath, the secretary, and leading priests, um, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. It's when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. So I don't know how you are, but we Americans are so self-reliant. And this is so contrary to our first approach to a problem, what Hezekiah did. What did Hezekiah do here? He went right to God and said, God, I can't handle this. And they're ridiculing you. And this is point number four. If you really want to experience mighty moves of God in your life, realize the battle belongs to the Lord. Cry out to him and expect the Lord to do great exploits that bring fame to his name. That's what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah knew that without God, the little nation of Judah was just toast. And so he came at this threat from this idea, God, this is you they're ridiculing. God, this is you that they're defaming. So he wanted to bring fame to God's name. And he says, God, hear what they're saying. Hear the ridicule that they're, they're directing towards you and do something. So if you read on in 2 Kings, it tells us, in, later on in verse 19, that, that Isaiah sent back a, a uh, you know, message to, the, to King Hezekiah. says, hey, listen, this king that's threatening you, he's going to go back to his land. He's going to be called back to his land. And there, he's going to be killed by one of his sons. Well, that's the good news, isn't it? You know what I, I notice about um, Hezekiah, that I think is really, really important, like it's the same in basketball or football or anything. You need a great team to do well. Hezekiah, I mean, you know who he has on his team? Who is his teammate? Isaiah, man. Pretty cool, huh? It's nice to have a prophet of God on your team, amen? And he had all these faithful servants on his team. You could just see that this wasn't something he was in alone. He had these faithful people surrounding him. Listen, community of Christ, this is part of the way we're going to succeed. This is part of the way we're going to see mighty moves with God is by collectively seeking the face of God. Amen? I should have got an amen there. Thank you. I know it's Father's Day. We can still be excited. All right. So... And, and the king of Assyria did indeed call back his troops. Let me read how it happened. Now, Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. 
So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, uh, Rephzeth, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Azar? So, so, Here's, the, here's you know, the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled right before Hezekiah's eye. And even as Sennacherib is retreating, he's saying, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And you know what? I, I want to say this, people of God. Hear this. The threats of the ungodly are loud. Satan wants to just drown out the voice of God in our lives. He wants the people of God to be silenced. He wants them to cower in fear. We just can't allow that to happen, amen? We have to understand this is a tactic of the enemy and we have to do spiritual warfare against it. So let's say 1 Timothy 1.7 out loud today as kind of a declaration of, of, uh, of who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's say this. Say this with me. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. Self-discipline, sorry, I blew that one. But anyway, I love what Hezekiah does next in this exchange that's taking place. He takes out this report that was given to him, this threat, this letter of threat from the king of Assyria, and he basically prays. So he spreads this out before God. He says, God, I want you to see this. And he prays. And I, I want you to receive this next set of verses from uh, 2 Kings 19 as a prayer. I want it to be your prayer. So hear this with a heart of faith today. But hear this as the people of God today that maybe we need to pray more like this also like Hezekiah prayed. So he spreads out this letter and he prays this way. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, God of Israel, throne between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the nations or kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the word Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. So that all the kingdoms of earth Oh, excuse me. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, Lord, are God. Man, is this key. What is Hezekiah worried about? God's name and reputation. He wants God's name to have fame. He realizes, you know, that if I'm going to do an exploit, this has to be done because of God and his name and reputation, not because of me. And I don't know how you function, but oftentimes my motivation is, God, I want out of this mess. Amen? I don't want to have to take a stand. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want, I don't want, there's a lot of eyes in there. What has to happen is the eye has to be pushed out, and we, as the people of God, need to be truly, genuinely concerned about who God is, and that glory be brought to his name. And when we begin to pray like that and seek God like that, then I think great exploits will be what we experience naturally as the people of God. And that's indeed what Hezekiah experiences. Listen to how his story ends. I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 through 37. That night, 
the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nishrach, his son Adramelech and Sherzer killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ariat. And Ishahandan, his son, succeeded him as king. Happened just like Isaiah predicted. Did the little tribe of Judah do anything here? Who did the battle? God. People of God, why do we get so shook up when it seems like the world's prevailing? Why do we wring our hands and start worrying like crazy? I mean, I, I'll be honest, I get, I get caught up in it every now and then, but why? Who's in charge here? God, what are we to do? Cry out to him. We should expect great exploits from a God because it's God's standard operating, uh, you know, kind of uh, procedure to do the uh, extraordinary. So let's go to this conclusion. God does great exploits. We just have to understand that's the way he operates. He's on the hunt to do great exploits, right? We as the people of God just have to be willing and ready for that to happen and, and expecting it to happen. And, and then we have to realize it's ordinary for him to be extraordinary. That's just who God is. So I'm going to end there today because it's Father's Day and I know that you dads want to all go home and do a grill out or whatever in the rain. Amen. Praise God for rain. Amen. Right? I'm so happy about rain today. Wow. I don't normally worry about it, but man, we're dry and we could use some rain. I've been praying that God would send rain. Anyway, so amen. In fact, maybe that's a great exploit today that God sent rain. We don't think of it that way, but let's, let's pray. And then I'm going to turn it back over to the praise team here for a concluding song. Lord God, I want to thank you for the uh, example of Hezekiah. We can learn vicariously through him. It's so good to learn these lessons, Lord, without having to go through them in the first person. And I thank you, Lord, for all these great Old Testament examples that illustrate to us who you are and how you work in the lives of your followers. And so today, Lord, I pray that we would take to heart some of these things that we talked about how to do great exploits that are exampled by Hezekiah. And Lord, we know we need to do right in your eyes. So that means we are going to, you know, get rid of some things that displace you and distract us from you. Help us to be that kind of people. God, we know that it's really, really important that we trust in you. But that trust should be, you know, uh, modeled by just following you hard. Following you hard. And then, Lord, man, I just, it blows my mind that you are on the hunt. Your eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. You're just searching for those folks that are, 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 are wanting to do right, Lord, that want to follow you, you know? So, Lord God, help us to be people then that do right, as we talked about today. And, and Lord, I, I just pray, I just pray that we'd expect great exploits from you, and that we do, and pray that these would happen for the fame of your name, that we would just understand that relationship, that we need to lift you up, that we need to bring this to you, that you do the battle. We don't do the battle. Thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you that you're the God that changes everything. Thank you that you take us from that place of despair, from that sinful condition, from that brokenness, Lord, and you recreate us into something brand new. Hallelujah, Lord, that we're not ever the same when we meet Jesus. And I want to pray on this Father's Day that the fathers would lead well in this way, that they would be the ones in their household that would 
be the first to say, you know, let's pray, let's seek God, that they would talk to their sons and daughters about who you are, Jesus, and they would model that uh, really well, Lord. Um, I just I just pray for them today. Thank you for the great dads that we have here. I was thinking this morning, and I sent my, my son and son-in-laws a note just because I'm so grateful that they're such great dads. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of a great dad. And I just pray that, that uh, we'd have many of those uh, here as part of our Grace Point family. Thank you for this day, Lord. We love you so much now as, as we sing this last song. And I just pray for your anointing to fall fresh on us and for us to sing with all our heart, soul, uh, mind, and strength. In your name, Jesus.